to the Smoky Mountains to serve at a day camp. Um, we got there safe and sound, and we returned safe and sound, uneventful, and that's good. But it was eventful, the week of, ministering to those kids. So we had a blessed time. Uh, thank you for praying for us. Please find some of our teenagers uh, and ask them about what they got to do and what they learned. It was a joyful time together. As we begin this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father God, we thank you for this time now in our service where we open up your word. I pray, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word, Father God, to be challenged by it, to submit to your word, Father God, that you've given us to know you and how to live. I pray, Father God, that you would do a work in us to teach us, to remind us, Father God, of what you've done for us through the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I'd like to talk about what it means to be a true servant, according to Scripture, according to the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 35 through 45. Mark, chapter 10, 35 through 45. To be true servants, we want to remember what Christ has done for us by coming into this world. Not getting all caught up in what we get to do, but remembering what Christ has done. It seems more and more so our mindset becomes about the benefits of being a Christian. Maybe we get so high and mighty or holier than thou that we think we're better than the world because we have status. We don't behave like a lost world anymore. We want the benefits that comes with Christ, but we often forget to have the heart of a servant like Christ. And that's what we want to look at this morning in Mark chapter 10. As selfish, prideful people that we are in a fallen world, how often have we found ourselves maybe thinking such thoughts? As these. Why don't I have what that person has? Or why am I not getting that promotion or that recognition that someone else got? Why am I not getting the attention I think I have deserved? These types of thoughts reveal our pride, reveal our envy, and reveal how selfish we can be as men and women many times. Even as saved individuals, even as those who claim to follow Christ, we are not completely free from sin in this world. Christ has freed us from it, but we are selfish people. Envy is a real issue. Pride is a real issue. And we can have these thoughts of elevating ourselves first. We may not vo always vocalize them. Oftentimes it happens in gossip. But even in our own thinking and our own selfishness, we can think these ways. And maybe if we're not even directly thinking those ways, often our behavior can match those ways of thinking. We want to place ourselves above others or receive some type of recognition. So as even as a Christian, even as a church, we have these 
kinds of thoughts. Their thoughts of pride. Their thoughts of selfishness. Really, their thoughts of glory-seeking, self-glorification. Maybe we've heard the phrase, God takes care of those who care of themselves. Sadly, many people think that's a verse in Scripture, but far from it. It's not a biblical term at all. So it's, a, it's a thinking and behaving that if I do my part, God will do his part. In one sense, that's distorting a bit of truth, because God, had, God has done his part. He has saved us from our sin, and he calls us to repent of sin and place our faith in him. Sometimes we get it backwards in our behavior, in our actions. We think, if I do this, God will do for me. Our passage today, in the context, takes place after Jesus is traveling with his disciples in verse 32. And he tells them for the third time that the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed by the chief rulers, be beaten, and be crucified. This is the third time he's told them this. And still they don't fully get it. But in the midst of this, in the midst of Jesus telling them about his coming, betrayal, and crucifixion, that the minds of the disciples are not on suffering, but on position. They're on the temporary, not the eternal. The status, not the service. Because as we see in our text, as we're going to see, after Jesus has just got done telling them about what is going to happen, two of the disciples make a request. So let's look at that together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or my left, is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard, when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who consider rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Two things I want us to consider this morning. Number one, the wrong view of trying to serve like Jesus Christ. The request of James and John happens immediately after Jesus has talked about his coming betrayal and crucifixion. The two sons of Zebedee, the text tells us, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, youngest, many commentators believe, of Jesus' twelve disciples. They come to Jesus and they have a request. If you turn a few pages back in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, we read these words. In verse 16, Jesus is talking about who he's cho chosen to be his 12 disciples. In verse 19, he says this, And going a little further, 
he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat, mending their nets. He called them as two young men who were working with their father, and they left their nets and followed him. Jumping over to chapter 3, verse 17. As, we, as Jesus lists his twelve disciples, we read these words. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, and the brother of John, to whom he gave the name Warnagers, that is, sons of thunder. These two young men, brothers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, many believe were young, but even as Jesus called them, he gives to them nicknames, the name Sons of Thunder. I can't fully understand yet why, but I, I would venture to say maybe they were a little hot-headed. Because elsewhere in the Gospels, when, when Jesus was traveling with his disciples, somebody was speaking in the name of Jesus, who wasn't one of their group. And James and John comes to him, Jesus and says, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah does and consume them? Sons of Thunder. Boldness in their youth. So after Jesus, turning back to Mark chapter 10, after Jesus has talked about his coming betrayal, the text tells us in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. The request, or the wrong view of serving like Jesus. They come, verses 35 and 37, Show us the words of these disciples. They have a bold request for Jesus. Note the boldness or even the strength of their words to Jesus. As the excitement, they come to him and they say to him, Do for us whatever we ask of you. He says, Make it happen. We want you. Do for us what we ask. Verses 35 and 37. Note their, note their words. If you're underlining in your Bible, note how the scripture points out. Make it happen. We want you to do this. They haven't even made the request yet, but they come to him with such boldness, and their words in verse 32 are these. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. How often have we approached Jesus the same way? Lord, do this. Do this now. Make it happen. The boldness in their request. One commentator says, As Jesus has predicted his coming humiliation and suffering, it is followed by his disciples' request for prominence, which stands in stark contrast to his humility. They do not understand but are gripped with amazement and fear. In the Gospel of Matthew, not a, not a contrary passage, but a passage from another perspective that shows us what's taking place here. Matthew chapter, 20, ver, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, tells us that the mother of James and John made this request of Jesus. The scripture's not contradicting itself, but it's showing us that the whole family is involved in this request. The sons are asking for this. The mother is asking the Lord, will you do this for my sons? It's a mindset of me first, do what I want. The whole family is involved in this request, and it is a bold request. They seem to be so excited about something they do not yet fully understand. Ignorance and pride has a way of doing that. Ignorance and pride has a way of exposing 
our selfishness, our excitement, and our misunderstanding. Because in the, in the day and age, in the first century, when the disciples were following Jesus, as we learn in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Jesus predicts three times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer and die. And every time they didn't get it. After the third time, we see these disciples. Their minds are going, they're spinning, a little bit out of control. What's Jesus going to do? We don't understand what he's talking about, about his coming betrayal. But as Peter has already confessed, we believe he is the Messiah. We believe he is the Savior of the world. We believe that he's going to come and establish his kingdom. So if he's going, if this thing that Jesus is talking about, upcoming in Jerusalem, we don't fully get it. But either way, it's going to lead to his prominence as the Messiah of the King, the ruler. But because we're, we're in the inner circle here, we need to go and we need to make sure that we have our position set for whatever is going to come. You see the sons of thunder. You see their boldness. They are excited. But even as Jesus has pronounced three times what is going to happen, their ignorance and pride has a way of exposing. And here's the request given to them. Given. Verse 37. And he said to them, and they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So after saying such things as this, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, they say to him, Here's the request. We want you to put us at your right hand and at your left hand. We want your glory with you. And after their request, we receive the response of Jesus. Jump back to verse 36. After they come to him and say, do for us whatever we ask, Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? It's quite fascinating as we see Jesus' attitude. They come to him and they say, teacher, rabbi, the text tells us. As Jesus is always doing, he's always taking opportunity to love on these men, to train them, to disciple them, and teach them about himself. And in a loving way, even though they come to him and say, do for us whatever we ask, he says, what would you like me to do? What would you like me to do? He is gracious in his response. He is listening to their words. Then, gives a response in verse 38. But Jesus said to them after they have made this request, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus responds with the hope of bringing clarity to their bold request. He's going to expose their pride and their selfishness you don't know what you're asking. You don't know the gravity of your request. Are you able to drink this cup? Are you able to be baptized with me? Jesus is trying to get them to see how inappropriate this request is. So he uses some metaphors that they would understand. That is one of a cup. That is one of baptism. So let's explore that a little bit in Scripture. When Jesus says, drink this cup, it is a cup of wrath. The, the cup of wrath is a symbol 
in the Old Testament for the coming suffering, something they should have been familiar with. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 75. Psalm 75. is given for us in the text. Psalm 75, verse 8. The Lord says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, foaming with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Flip over with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah is all about the coming suffering of the Son of God into the world. Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 17 through 22. The Lord says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of the people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. The Old Testament, something these two disciples would be very familiar with. When Jesus hears the request to sit at his right and his left, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Which in their minds should signal wrath suffering, pain. Are you able to drink? Are you able to have this? What about the baptism? This baptism of suffering is also used in Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. This is not baptism by immersion, but a metaphor of what the Lord is doing. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? First off, if you were baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's one thing. But as a result, you have been baptized into his death. By your admission that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what baptism signifies. You have died to your former ways, you're raised to new life. You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. As the Apostle Paul expounding on what Jesus has done. 
So as Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Mark chapter 10. Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able? Are you able to suffer like me? Are you able to deny yourself like me and be raised to new life? So here's how Jesus challenges them to expose their inappropriate request, to use the metaphors of cup and baptism. Note the beginning of verse 39. They said to him, as James and John, we are able. Think about that. These two young men, the sons of thunder, they've come to Jesus and they said, Lord, do for us whatever we ask of you. As Jesus goes, what would you like me to do? Grant us one to sit at your right and one at your left. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to be baptized the way I am? And note the quickness of the response. We are able. There's not time to think about it. They're not processing the cup of wrath. They're not processing the suffering that is to come. As the text tells us in, the, in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Jesus is, is telling them about his coming death, betrayal, death and betrayal, they, they scratch their heads and go, what is he talking about? You see that in their response. We are able. We are able. Is a bold reply once again. We see that they still do not understand the gravity of their request as they respond with further boldness and affirmation. We are able. We are able to do this. So Jesus takes this as an opportunity to expose their pride, their selfishness, and their envy. So he says in verse 39, Mark chapter 10, And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. So as Jesus replies once again in this ongoing conversation, he responds with affirmation, yes, you will drink, you will be baptized, but not in the way you think. This cup of wrath, you will face. This baptism of suffering, you will face. But Jesus is using it as an opportunity. The baptism the word, this metaphor for the experience of death and threatening judgment. But with it comes the hope of ultimate deliverance. And that's what he wants to teach them. They wanted to be like Jesus. And so Jesus says, you will, but not the way you think you will. You will drink, Jesus says. You will be baptized, the scripture tells. Jesus is affirming. But just as we read the scripture, note their excitement. Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able? Yes, we are able. Jesus says, you will. You will drink. But not the way you think. It will happen. You will drink this cup. One commentator says, Though the sons of 
Zebedee, are naively overconfident in their present ability to endure suffering. They will share the Lord's suffering in the future, not contributing to his unique mission of atonement, but in paying a painful price to proclaim the message of the cross, following the example of his own suffering. The Apostle Peter knew that later in life. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. Let's hear Peter's words on this matter. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. So as Peter writes to the church, and as Peter, the context of 1 Peter is writing to those believers who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter writes, For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Peter reflecting back on what Christ endured for them by going to the cross, suffering at the hands of sinful men, being betrayed, and giving himself not to rebuke, not to fight back, but to entrust himself to the Father who judges justly. Peter thinks back on all that has happened, that we as his followers have suffered. So in the context of Mark chapter 10 in our text, as they're making this bold request, Jesus says, you will drink, but not in the way you think. This request that they make and that, that Jesus responds with, this request is not Jesus to give, but instead he acknowledges those to whom God has prepared. He says to them, to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. Not mine to grant. Jesus is once again exposing their mindset. What's so fascinating about this? Because as we know, we know the end of the book, we know what's going, we know what happens. Here's these two young disciples coming. Lord, do for us whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do? You do not know what you're asking. You, but you will. You will drink the cup of wrath. You will be baptized in this suffering. What do we know about these two disciples? A short time after Jesus has ascended to the Father and the, the gospel is going forth to the nations, we come to the book of Acts, chapter 12, and it tells us that John, sorry, James, the brother of John, has been arrested by Herod. And after James has boldly proclaimed before Herod the message of salvation and what Jesus Christ has done, what does Herod do? He runs him through with a sword. One of the first martyrs after Stephen, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, James experienced the wrath, but not to make atonement for sin the way what Christ had already done but to identify with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Laid down his life and was instantly welcomed into eternity with his Savior. He went all the way, but he had a lot to learn between Mark chapter 10 
in Acts chapter 12. And indeed, he did learn of his What about John? We know that John grew to be an older man. Some commentators think if he was one of the youngest of Jesus' disciples, late teens, early 20s, many believe he lived to be in his 90s. When we read the Gospel of John, written by him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Revelation, the graciousness of which he writes, the love and compassion with which he writes, banished to the island of Patmos for proclaiming the message of salvation. Jesus says to them, you will drink this cup. It's not the way you expect. And so it often is with us when we make bold requests of Jesus or get lost in our pride and envy and jealousy about our position and about our status. We don't always know what God is going to do, but when we focus on ourselves, it reveals our pride and it reveals our selfishness. But God has a way of breaking us down in our pride. God has a way of exposing what he's going to do. And that's what Jesus is doing in this text. He's getting them to see you don't know what you're asking, but you're going to experience it. This request of Jesus, he acknowledges that it will happen. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. Who has been prepared? Meaning this, the point being, as Jesus puts it back on the Father, is not, is making the point that someone who would make this request is not somebody who will get that position, but to those who have not asked. Jesus is not saying that somebody is going to sit at my right and my left, but if someone did, they wouldn't be asking me now. It'd be those who are so consumed with other people and the message of salvation and following me that this kind of thing wouldn't even enter their mind whom it has been prepared, already prepared. Somebody the Father has already acknowledged would have that kind of position. We learn in the scripture, in the book of Revelation, that God has given, granted position and authority to the twelve disciples. The book of Revelation tells us that they do have that position, but he had already prepared it for them. It was not what they were expecting. And what's so interesting in the Revelation, when we read about how God has prepared a place for them, especially the twelve in heaven. It is the, the Apostle John, the one who made this request, is the one who later in life got to write about that. See how Jesus exposes their pride to teach them humility. To get them to see that you will suffer. Another Bible commentator says this, after Jesus talks about his upcoming betrayal, the astonished disciples, two of them are so amazed at the prospect of going to Jerusalem and possibly taking part in Jesus' glory, it is a part of their stubborn definition that they don't know who the Messiah really is. Not fully. All of Jesus' warnings have not been able to shift it. Their request to sit at his right and his left in his glory talks about an ancient culture. To sit at one's right hand was to serve in a place of position and honor. The left hand was for an intimate friend. In the very least, this request is extremely inappropriate. At the most, it is a power play. 
to achieve recognition. They don't yet understand what they are asking. And Jesus tells them, you do not know, but you will. You're asking for something now, but I'm telling you what's to come. And we know what happened to them. We saw how the Lord broke that down. We see their humility. The fact that James stands before Herod and boldly proclaims and dies for it. The graciousness of what John writes in his letters to the church. To know that Jesus is going to come back. There's an old joke that is often told. And this joke goes like this. Humility and how I achieved it. We may joke with our words. We may say such things out of, out of jest and banter. Oftentimes, though, our words, even in jest, often reveal a seriousness of action, a seriousness of behavior. We want the recognition. Lord, do for me what I want when I want it. How many of us have prayed that way? Lord, please answer now in this way. How have we sought his glory for ourselves? We may think, well, that's a strange way to say it. I've never said that. Maybe not. But how have our actions demonstrated that? How have we done that personally? How have we done that as a church? Oh, I'm better than those people. I wouldn't behave like that. I wouldn't do that. Lord, thank you for what you've done. And it becomes more about us than Christ. When we want recognition for something that we have done, we want appreciation for what we have achieved. Look at what I did. Look at what God is doing in me. These questions, as some, some might seem harsh, but they can often reveal the motives of our heart, the pride and the envy and the jealousy. As we have noted, the boldness of the disciples and their approach to Jesus. Let us see the second point we want to consider this morning. Let us see what, God is, what Jesus is going to do to teach the disciples about what really matters. The first point is a wrong view serving like Jesus. They did not fully understand what he was going to do. The second point is this, the cost of serving like Jesus. So after verses 35 through 40 in, in this dialogue between Jesus and the two disciples, and Jesus says, your request is not mine to grant. It is to the Father. He puts it back on his Father in heaven. To those who would say, those who ask this will not have that position. Those who do not ask has already been granted. Humility before pride. So Jesus gives a response in verses 41 through 45. The response Jesus gives to James and John is not that they, will, is that they do not fully understand what will happen, but Jesus is going to use it as an opportunity to teach them. So the initial response of the disciples we see in verse 41. Look at there with me. After Jesus has says all these things, we know that the other ten disciples are nearby, and they've heard this entire conversation. Verse 41 tells us, And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. That's the whole verse. When the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. Another translation says, When they heard it, they became angry. They were angry with James and John. Aren't these guys supposed to be friends? But the third prediction of Jesus coming to Jerusalem and suffering and dying, it's been quite some time that they have been disciples. 
they've gotten to know each other really well. How often friends can still get angry at one another. They became angry. But, as I study the scriptures and as I see the context of what's taking place here, and as most Bible commentators, I think, would agree in their response, is that when the ten became indignant or angry at James and John about this approach, their anger was not one of, how dare you? What do you who do you think you are? What are you guys doing? Get back in place. But rather, is their anger is, why didn't I think of that? They beat us to it. How often is our pride exposed when somebody cuts us off in the grocery line? How often is our pride exposed when somebody cuts us off in traffic? How often when we don't get what we want when we want and somebody else gets it first? Our pride and our envy is exposed. Just as Jesus is trying to expose their pride and envy for such a request that they don't fully understand, now the other ten are thinking, they're so angry, why didn't I get there first? They beat us to it. They say, how dare, not how dare you, but rather, why didn't I think of that? Pride of recognition or envy has a way of exposing our heart and anger towards what we want. And even as Jesus is pouring into these twelve men, they are not without faults. They are not perfect. But rather, as Jesus just said for the third time, I'm going to be betrayed and suffer and die, they make a request and the others go, they beat us to it. And they became angry with one another. But note verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who consider rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So after they have become angry, and Jesus sees them clearly angry, Jesus responds with an example. He doesn't tell them so much to get in their place. He's going to give an opportunity for them to learn that. Look at the graciousness of our Lord. I'm going to use this as a teaching moment. How often we get angry at other people and we just start fighting back and forth. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity to tell them, teach them a lesson but one in kindness and in love. He sees them angry, he sees them fighting, and he says to them, come here, come here. He says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You know how the Gentiles behave. You know how they try to receive recognition, and when one is elevated to a status of authority, they lord it over everybody else. They're rude, they're prideful, and they're domineering. Remember the worldly leaders of the Gentiles. Look how they misuse their authority. Look how they elevate their status and position. Jesus is using a real-life example for selfish, domineering authority of the world. Or, Or you could say, worldly thinking. Jesus is about to show the 12 disciples that this way of thinking is what they are demonstrating in this moment. Because he says in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave 
of all. So after the example of the way you're thinking, you're thinking like the world, you're thinking like the Gentiles, Jesus drives the point home. You are having a me-first mindset. You are thinking what I want, when I want. This is worldly thinking. You need to have a new way of thinking. You need to think of others before yourself. We see the contrast that Jesus gives to them. Fix your priorities on following Jesus. Fix your priorities on serving others, not what you get to do. So Jesus says, but this way of thinking, this way of thinking, just as I told you about, the Gentiles who rule over those, they lord it over them, but this way of thinking shall not be so among you. Uh-oh. That's just what they all 12 have demonstrated, this way of thinking. This way of thinking should not be so among you. Don't behave that way. Don't act that way. These are 12 men who spent intimate time with Jesus, and they were still thinking about themselves. How often do we as believers in Jesus Christ still think about ourselves before we think about others? Jesus emphasizes the you for them. You. But you, it shall not be so among you. Looking at them, telling them, don't think this way. So he teaches them. He exposes their pride. He exposes their selfishness. He exposes their heart. He says, do you want to be great? Then you need to serve. You want to be a great servant? True greatness is a matter of thinking of others. Thinking true greatness is a matter of serving others before yourself. You want to be first in line? Then become slave of all. There's some sharp words, words we don't like. Slave. Slave of all. But what does a slave do? A slave is owned by somebody else, and his entire life is about everything else but himself. So Jesus is using another example. You want to be great? Then put everything you do before yourself, just as a slave is supposed to. Not that, not that followers of Jesus Christ become slaves, but as the Apostle Paul writes, we are slaves of Christ. Everything we do is about others first. So Jesus is teaching them that. But it shall not be so among you, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That your mindset is one of everybody else. Jesus says, whoever, in verse 44, and slave of all. This applies to everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Whoever among you, Jesus says to the twelve, Whoever is going to become your disciples, who's ever going to place their faith in Jesus Christ, it matters to everybody who says, I'm a Christian. Whoever among you must be slave of all. This is a must. Verse 44. Must be slave of all. It's non-negotiable. So as Jesus drives the final point home. Verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then Jesus tells them and reminds them why he came into the world. For even the Son of Man, he tells them. Jesus told them of a worldly example. Now he's going to tell them of the ultimate example. That is what he's going to do for them. 
the example of laying down his life for himself. Philippians chapter 2. Don't consider your others more significant than yourselves, but look to Jesus, who went to the cross, despised the shame, suffered and died and was seated at the right hand of God. When Jesus says the Son of Man, Jesus is actually drawing attention to one of his divine titles. In the Old Testament, Son of Man is referred to a heavenly being who would gloriously appear in the future as ruler over all the eternal kingdom. That is found in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. As Jesus uses the title Son of Man, it is a title that Jesus often referred to himself and is always in the context of the one who became associated with an incarnation, death, and resurrection, and ascension. John chapter 3 tells us this. The Son of Man is the one who came, dwelt among men, suffered, and died, and was ascended to the Father. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, 45, the Son of Man came. The one who came to pay the price for our sins. The one who came to suffer and die. The Son of Man came not to be served. The Son of Man came to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 tells us that. When Joseph is wondering what to do about Mary, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, You will name him Jesus. And what will he do? He will save his people from their sin. That is why he was born. So Jesus draws his, his disciples who are thanking me first. What can I get out of this? What will God give me when I want? He says, I did not come to serve, but to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. A ransom is a payment. The price paid for the release of bondage. In this case, the bondage of sin that every man woman and child is born into. All slaves of sin. And Jesus says, I came to give my life as a payment, a ransom for many, to free us from the sin of the world, bondage of sin. The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price for sin by making the ultimate sacrifice, dying for the sins of the world, the ultimate act of service, this is why he came. This is why he was born. He was born to die for us, for the world. When Jesus uses the request of James and John to teach them about being true servants, he uses it to teach them about true discipleship, to be a true servant. If you want to follow me, you must put everything else above yourself. If you want to identify with me in my baptism, the cup of wrath, here's what I'm going to do going to suffer and die and rise again. And you're going to give your lives for that. As the text goes on, which we don't see this morning, but as the text goes on, they, they continue their journey to Jerusalem. We don't see the initial response. But after the third prediction of Jesus, they're on their way to Jerusalem. It's almost about time for his betrayal. Even as chapter 11 tells us, it's the triumphal entry. It's the beginning of the final week. So I would venture to say that after they have made this bold request, less than two weeks later, Jesus has already died, risen, risen again, and they have appeared to him. 
And it has completely reoriented their thinking about what he came to do and the foolishness of their requests. So much so that even when he was betrayed in the garden, they fled. We will drink the cup. We will go with you. And they fled when he was betrayed. Just like Jesus uses a real-life scenario to teach his disciples, what has God used in our own lives to teach us, to humble us, and to remind us that your way of thinking of yourself first, your me-first mentality, what is God, who has God, or what is God doing in your life, in our lives, to expose our pride? Just as James and John had the boldness and pride to make such a request of Jesus, we too have been so prideful and full of ourselves to make such requests of Jesus that we can often find ourselves thinking in the same way, Jesus, give me what I want. Jesus, please do it this way. And if we're not saying that, oftentimes we can find ourselves living like that. Our actions to bypass those in need. Our actions to overlook things. Because we have it better. We have it made. I'm not doing what that person does. I'm a lot more holier than that person. I'm not behaving that way. Jesus says, that way of thinking must not be so among you. Jesus, give me what I want. How sinful, how prideful, how envious. Envy has a way of exposing who we are. Jesus came to serve, and we need to be reminded, how are we serving the Lord Jesus Christ? How are we serving others before ourselves? When was the last time we served somebody, not because we had to, but because of we wanted to, because Christ is in us? To see a need and meet it. To serve like Jesus is in us. This is a mark of true servanthood. This is a mark of true discipleship. Just as James and John made the request, and Jesus goes, the, the people who would have that position would not be the ones asking for. So for us, how are we serving, not because of what we're going to get, simply because Christ is in us. We're not even thinking about what we get out of it. We're simply doing it because Christ is in us. As we ponder the matter of what it means to be a true servant, let us remember what Christ has done. He's paid the price for sin, suffered and died, and was resurrected. Let us remember what Christ has done before we ever get distracted by what we want and what we get to do for the Lord Jesus. Let's not get caught up in what we get to do. Let's simply do it and not give it a second thought because Christ is in us. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. How are we living as a response of that? How has the resurrection changed our selfish, self-oriented mindset? Do not be so among you. But you want to be great and become a servant, become slave of all. Be like the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for others. How do we lay our life down as an act of true service for Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father God, even through the, the boldness of James and John, let us be reminded and exposed of our pride and our often arrogance to say things that we don't fully understand. Rather, Lord, let us submit to you 
Father God, so often we, be, we can become like the other ten. Become angry and indignant at what you're doing in the lives of others. And we say, well, what about me? Father God, expose our pride, expose our selfishness. Father God, let us turn to you. Lord, help us to serve as you serve. Help us to put others first. Help us to put our church family first. Father God, to be a slave of all. And as such, that we identify, that we show the world that we are your followers. How do we show a world that we know you if we're living for ourselves? It's contrary, Lord. So forgive us for our pride. Father God, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you as their Savior. Father God, that today would be the day of salvation. That they see through their pride, their arrogance. Father God, that living for themselves is not worth it, but it is something that is so contrary to you. You resist the proud. Father God, that today you would break them, lead them to repentance. Father God, I pray for us in here who who know you as our Savior, but we're so caught up in what we don't have and what we want that we have forgotten what you've done. Convict us of our selfishness and our pride, our envy. Expose our sin and teach us to walk in humility by simply following you and not getting distracted by everything else. Father God, expose our sin. Make it clear. Make it plain. So that we can repent of it, ask forgiveness, and follow you. Do a work in us as Portage Bible Church. Father God, do a work in us as men and women, young and old, to turn to you. Seek your forgiveness, Father God. And remember, Father God, that you have freed us from the bondage of sin by paying the ultimate price, the ultimate ransom, your precious blood, so that we can have life in your name. Restore us now, we pray. Guide us as we go from here to live for you this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.